Our second reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 11. I will read uh, verses 11 through 13. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I think the word Papa is the best word in the English language, P-A-P-A. I think it's the best word in the English language. On Monday of this week, the day that I began writing this sermon, I walked out of my office to go home for lunch, and as I was taking the few steps from the front porch of my office to my car, I hear it, the best word in the English language, Papa. My daughter Mia, who is a second grader here at Valley Christian School, was on the playground at recess, and she called me over because she wanted me to watch her twirl three hula hoops around her waist. A big part of my job as her father is doing just that, watching her stunts and her capers, admiring and critiquing her artwork, being baffled by her card tricks, going head-to-head with her across a chessboard, trying to puzzle out her riddles. A plane crashes, and every single person is killed. But two people walk away from it. How come? They were married. It'll dawn on you. Every single person. A big part of my job, that's one of Mia's. That's a Mia, that's a Mia riddle. How do you make a banana split? You send it to gymnastics. Another one of hers. A big part of my job is just being there with her to be a mirror that reflects back to her her own experience. When my child calls out Papa, she wants to know what I think. She wants to know if I'm pleased with her. She wants to know if I think her cartwheel is amazing or her artwork is beautiful or her joke is funny. She wants to know what I think. Children want to please their parents. Children want to know that what they are doing or saying or making is good and valuable. And the way they find that out is by checking in with their parents. Children want to see in their parents' eyes and in their parents' reaction an evaluation of themselves, of their importance, of their worth. Our children believe us implicitly whether or not we deserve to be believed. They believe us and they believe what we say about them with our words and with our facial expressions and with our body language and with our actions and with the choices that we make with our time. 
If our words and actions tell our children that they are a joy, that they are a treasure, that they are a gift from God, guess what? They believe us. But if our words and our actions tell our children that they are a bother or an inconvenience, that they are a mistake, guess what? They believe us. And so when I hear my daughter call out to me, Papa, I know that I am being summoned to my most important job. I'm being called to hold up a mirror for my child, a magic Papa mirror, in which she sees if she is beautiful or ugly, in which she sees if she is interesting or boring, in which she sees if she is valuable or worthless. Papa. I think it's the best word in the English language. Today is Father's Day, which is a secular holiday, not a religious holiday, but I'm taking a little detour from our series of sermons through the book of Romans because I want to lift up a mirror this morning for all of our fathers in the same way that we hold up a mirror for our children. This morning, I want to hold up a biblical mirror in which we fathers can catch a glimpse of how we're doing as dads. Now, I had some real anxiety about preaching this sermon Because there are lots of complicated emotions connected with this day. There are a lot of potential landmines in a sermon on Father's Day. For some folks, Father's Day is a great day of joy. A time to celebrate and to honor and to remember. It's one of my favorite days of the year. I like it almost as much as I like my birthday. But for a lot of people... Talk about fathers can trigger grief and anger and guilt. On the one side, some of us as children had lousy fathers, absent fathers, abusive fathers. Some of us never knew our fathers. And some of our fathers are dead. And so for us, Father's Day is a reminder of what went wrong or what we lost or what we never had. And on the other side, some of us as fathers know that we have failed our children in the past. And some of us know that we're not doing such a hot job now. Some of us have lost our children to death, to the world, to the stupidity of divorce. So for us, Father's Day is an occasion for guilty feelings, for a return to her grief That never ends. Last Sunday, 13 men from Huntington Valley Presbyterian Church went down to the Helping Hand Rescue Mission in Philadelphia. Helping Hand feeds homeless men and tries to get them back on their feet. We were there to uh, attend a worship service and to uh, be a part of their luncheon that day. And Thomas Gallishaw, who is the brother of Matt Gallishaw, who is often uh, visited with us here at HVPC, he reminded the men, Father's Day is coming. Make sure that you call or text your children this week. And when he said that, an audible groan went up from the congregation. If you're a man living on the streets, 
If you are a man reduced to going from church to church to find food, there's a good chance that your relationship with your children leaves a lot to be desired. There's a good chance that you haven't been the best dad. There's a good chance that you have a lot of regrets and a lot of shame. And so Father's Day can be hard. Knowing these risks, however, I'm going to talk about a few elements of the biblical ideal of fatherhood. And I'm going to talk about those ideal elements knowing full well that none of us has ever been on the giving or the receiving end of that kind of ideal fathering. Okay, that's my caveat. So here we go. Four characteristics of biblical fatherhood. Number one, compassion. Number two, delight. Number three, comfort. And number four, discipline. I think the first and the most important characteristic of biblical fatherhood is compassion. A father has compassion for his child. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, God compares himself to a compassionate father. In Psalm 103, 13, we read, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. What I love about this verse is that David isn't really talking about fathers. This isn't a verse that was intended for a Father's Day sermon. David's subject is God. He's explaining something about God, something about God's character, and he wants us to know that God is compassionate. Now, any time that we need to talk about God, because God is in a class by himself, we are forced to use metaphors and similes drawn from everyday life. And so the psalmist searches around in his experience for the epitome of compassion. (laughs) What does he come up with? He comes up with a father showing compassion for his children. In the King James Version, this word is translated as pity. Like a father, uh, like a father, uh, like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. The idea that David is conveying here is that God, who is more powerful than a billion blazing suns, understands our fragility, he understands our delicacy, our tenderness, and he compensates for us. He accommodates us. He condescends to us. Like a father getting down on the floor to play with his toddler, God meets us where we are because he has compassion on us. Fatherly compassion, part of God's character, an ideal that all fathers are called to emulate. And we see the exact same idea in the New Testament. You all, of course, know the story that Jesus told about the prodigal son. In that story, the father is the model of godly compassion toward his wayward child. Though the child has offended the father and offended the family, though the child has been selfish and debauched, the father runs to the child in compassion. Here's what Jesus says. And he arose and came to his father, but 
while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Jesus is talking about God's compassion for us. And the image that Jesus uses to express this deep truth is the compassion that a father has for his child. Compassion. How are we doing with that, gentlemen? What is our compassion quotient? What score would our children give us? The first characteristic of biblical fatherhood, compassion. I think the second characteristic of biblical fatherhood is delight. A father delights in his child. Now, I must say that delight is a neglected word these days. We live in an age of excitement and distraction. Delight seems oddly tame when compared with the thrills that the world offers us today. Delight seems to have fallen off of our menu of pleasures. And I think that's a shame. Because I think the Christian life should be delightful. Delight in God. Delight in His creation, delight in the fellowship of the saints, delight in our spouses, delight in our children. The godliness of delight we see in an interesting passage in Proverbs chapter 8. Now most of Proverbs, you know, uh, is this compilation of wise sayings that reads like a collection of fortune cookies. But in Proverbs 8, there's this long poem in which divine wisdom, Sophia, appears and she speaks her mind. And divine wisdom says, I was constantly at God's side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in His presence, rejoicing in His world, delighting in mankind. Do you picture God being delighted? Day after day, do you think of God looking at us with delight? You should. Psalm 149.4 says, The Lord takes delight in His people. Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take the great delight in you. In the Song of Solomon, a book that I will never preach, we have an image of God... And his people, we could do a Bible study on it. We have an image of God and his people of Christ and his bride. And we read, how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful, how delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine and the fragrance of your perfume more than any spice. God delights in us the way a father should delight in his child. God delights in us the way that a husband should delight in his wife. Now if God, who is so high and exalted, can delight in us 
Surely we can delight in our children who are really no different from us. Delight. So how are we doing with that, gentlemen? What is our delight quotient? What score would our children give us? Second characteristic of biblical fatherhood, delight. I think the third characteristic of biblical fatherhood is comfort. A father comforts his child. Life throws stuff at us, stuff that hurts us, stuff that scares us, stuff that makes us sad. There's no way to avoid pain and trouble in this life, but where there is pain, there can be consolation. Where there is grief, there can be comfort. And we, as fathers, are on the front lines comforting our children as they are bruised and buffeted by this life. So how do we, as fathers, comfort our children? In my experience, comfort has two components. The first is presence. P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E. Presence. And the other is acknowledgement. We are a comfort to people when we are simply present with them in the midst of their suffering. They say misery loves company, and that's because whenever we're miserable, people run away. There's something about trouble that drives people away, and so people who are suffering are also abandoned. But by simply being present... By not running away, we can be a comfort to the suffering person. For our children, this means we sit with them when things are tough. We stay with them when they're struggling. When someone is hurting, we comfort them when we acknowledge their pain. When we validate their suffering. For some crazy reason, people do Normally, just the opposite. I'm not so sure why. Maybe they think they're helping. Maybe they don't know what else to do. Maybe they're nervous. Maybe they feel responsible. I'm not really sure. But for some crazy reason, people often do the opposite. But when I, when we are confronted with the pain of other people, you will discover that a lot of people say things like, Oh, it could be worse. Or, Oh, I'm sure that it's all for the best. Or, oh, I know that God has a purpose for this. Or, oh, it will be better tomorrow. Now, as your pastor, let me give you some serious counsel. And I hope you listen to me and do as I say. If you are ever with someone who's in pain, they're sick, They've lost their job, their kid is in jail, their wife has left them, they've flunked out of school. If you are ever with a child who is suffering, they're being bullied at school, they've been rejected by peers, they're disappointed in their performance. If you are ever with someone in pain and you feel the urge to say something like, oh, it could be worse, or oh, I'm sure God has a purpose, I give you permission to take your big hand and slap yourself as hard as you can. And if you don't want to do it, You call me and I'll come and slap you for yourself. This is really important. 
Telling someone in pain that their pain isn't real might make you feel better, but it is cruel to the person who's suffering. To comfort someone, we need to listen to and acknowledge their experience. As comforters, we don't fix the problem, but we acknowledge it. Rather than denying their experience by saying, oh, it could be worse, or oh, I'm sure it's all for the best, we acknowledge their experience by saying something like, I can tell that that really hurts. Or, I'm really sorry that that's happening to you. Comforting doesn't mean you fix the problem. Comforting means you come alongside of the person while they're suffering. And that's our job as fathers. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles. Notice that the Father of compassion and the God of all comforts does not fix the troubles or make them go away. Instead, He gives compassion and comfort by hearing our cries and by being present in the midst of the trouble. Life throws stuff at our kids. Stuff that hurts them. Stuff that scares them. Stuff that makes them sad. And there is no way for us to shield our children from all of the pain and the trouble in this life. But when trouble does come, we can be present. And we can acknowledge their pain. That's called comfort. So how are we doing with that, gentlemen? What is our comfort quotient? What score would our children give us? The third characteristic of biblical fatherhood, comfort. And finally, discipline. Discipline is the fourth characteristic of biblical Fatherhood. A father's discipline their children. It's too bad that this word discipline has come to mean punishment. Because that's not really what the word means. Discipline is training and formation. Discipline is coaching. And fathers need to be coaches. Children, you may have noticed, are little people. They're not fully formed. They need to be trained or Coach to do the things that they need to do in life. Coaching has two parts. First is communicating to the child the way things are supposed to be. And the second is giving feedback to the child about how he's doing. Now with regard to the first part of coaching, communicating to the child the way things are supposed to be, we do that with words and we do that with actions. When our words don't agree with our actions, our children will follow the actions and not the words. What we do counts much more than what we say when it comes to our children's behavior. If we want honest children, we need to be honest. If we want sons who respect women, we need to respect women. If we want daughters who are brave, we need to be brave. Now, with regard to the second part of coaching, giving feedback to let the child know how he is doing, that's where we find what many people think of as discipline. 
Because corporal punishment is a kind of feedback. Lots of dads love to quote, spare the rod and spoil the child. And yet, it is my experience that jails are full of people who saw plenty of the rod growing up. There are so many other kinds of coaching feedback that we can offer our children that do a better job of helping them become the kinds of people they should be. If I have to apply the rod to my child, it's probably a sign that I have failed as a coach and as a father. In the same way that if I have to apply a fire extinguisher to my stove, it's probably a sign that I've failed as a cook. Now, I'm not saying that the rod is never necessary. And a fire extinguisher comes in handy sometimes. If you, But if you need the rod, and if you need the fire extinguisher, it's a sign that something is already off the rails. So while dads love to quote, spare the rod and spoil the child, biblically trained children love to quote Colossians 3.21. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. And Ephesians 6.4, which begins, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Our job as fathers is to see that our kids learn to love God and to love God's Law, And we will not inculcate that love by beating them or by berating them. Our job as fathers is to encourage our children by setting a good example. Our goal as fathers is children who are filled with joy and not anger. Our best chance to teach our children to love God and to love God's law is to love those things ourselves. And if you see your children veering from the straight and narrow, first take a look at what path you are walking in. Discipline. Or maybe we should call it coaching. So how are we doing with that, gentlemen? What's our discipline quotient? Our coaching quotient. What score would our children give us? The fourth characteristic of biblical fatherhood, discipline. I think Papa is the best word in the English language. Just four letters. P-A, P-A. It looked like a spider. It's not. I don't know what your kids call you, father, dad, daddy, pop, papa. I hope they don't call you Charles or Robert. I don't know what they call you, but whatever title your children use for you, know that it names an incomparably important human relationship. A human relationship modeled on a divine relationship. God is our Father. He is our Father when we are fatherless. 
He is our standard when we are not sure what to do. And so to the fathers of Huntington Valley Presbyterian Church, let me say just a few things in closing. I know that you might not have been the perfect father. And I know that fatherhood is a difficult job. But I also know that God makes no mistakes in His providence. And so if you have been called to the task, God will equip you for it. And so is your pastor. I charge you to be compassionate with your children. I charge you to be delighted with your children. I charge you to be a comfort to your children. I charge you to discipline them, to coach them without provoking them or discouraging them. And as your brother in Christ, your brother in this crazy enterprise of caring for children, I encourage you to have a good time and enjoy it while you can. Happy Father's Day. Amen. Now I want to invite all of the fathers to stand.